like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will be beginning my examination, uh, which will be over five parts of Philip K. Dick's 1964 novel, The Simulacrum. Um, So this novel, um, it's one of four novels Dick published in 1964, along with Martian Time Slip, which I've already looked at, Clans of the Alphane Moon, and The Penultimate Truth. Um, and if you combine it with the books he published in 1965, he publishes like seven novels in a, in a two-year two period. Um, and a lot of his greats are in that, in that group. Um, I really like the simulacrum. I, I always did. I, I, but still, my views of this novel have evolved of late after rereading it. I used to find this novel very much like a mixture of things. I had the feeling that Dick didn't really know what he wanted to do with the novel, but he had different ideas. So he said, let me just cram these ideas into one story. And it felt very disparate, you know. Now the characters do meet. With a few exceptions, the characters do interact. So these stories are are intertwined. Yet they seem to be all doing their own kind of thing. Like we have a quest to record some music with some characters, with some others, we have like some internal uh, high politics of the society. And we'll, we'll talk about this political system as we go through the next few episodes. We have uh, a musician who is dealing with his own mental illnesses and his own psychoses. We have uh, kind of a, a psychiatrist coming to terms with legal changes going on in his country. We have uh, a couple brothers who both are mechanics and both work for uh, um, companies that make gestalt humans. Basically, they make androids. And there's these, the relationship between these brothers are complicated by the fact that one is sleeping with the other's ex-wife. And then we have two kind of old friends, Al Miller and Ian Duncan, who decide to take up their old uh, hobby of playing classical music on jugs. <laughs> And uh, if you go on, if you go on YouTube and listen to people playing jugs, you can then imagine how hilarious it is that that Dick wants to have these jugs play play classical music. It seems that jugs were more like an accompaniment in sort of folk music in some regions of the United States, not really something you could get a Schubert out of. But somehow these guys do. Uh, and those are those are our main characters. Oh, and then there's like also like a a of a revolt going on by a group called the Sons of Job, which actually very much reminds me of, of like the Jordan Peterson movement in a lot of ways, you know, in the fact that it kind of groups up, you know, disaffected young men who maybe don't have jobs or don't have wives, don't really feel they're part of the contemporary culture. So they join that and kind of turn to the right. So it's a, it's a proto-fascist movement. Um, so we got a lot of different things going on. And although they connect, it, it seems the connections are kind of loose and almost an afterthought in Dick's mind. That was my first impression. But reading it this time, and maybe it's because I've read this a couple times, I feel the novel much more well put together. Uh, maybe that just comes with revisiting the text. Um, or maybe because I've, I've put a lot of thought into it because I, I wanted to, to talk about it. 
Um, but anyways, uh, that's that's my overall feelings on the simulacrum. I think it's a lot of fun. It's it's one of his more funny novels. Most of his sixty novels are funny, um, but this one particularly so. It's got some really memorable characters. I think, uh, especially King Grosian, the musician with his mental illnesses. Ian and Al, Ian Duncan and Al Miller are a lot of fun. Um, Vince and Chick as these brothers, one working for a big company, a big cartel, the other working for a kind of small failing company. Um, and then the whole political system is kind of interesting. I think the idea of a celebrity leader is really interesting. We almost almost have, we almost have like a reality show kind of political system here. It, it, he does that in other works as well, but I, I think here it's, it's maybe the most conspicuous example in his work of, of a vision of leadership as, as a media event. And I, that's something that I think is, is relevant today, since we do have a, a reality show president, at least in the United States. So anyways, um, the way my, I'm going to approach the simulacrum um, is... Actually, to tell you the truth, I, I lost my copy of the simulacrum on, on a bus ride. I, I commute once a week, and I, I lost my, my copy. Um, I have to go see if I can get it back at a lost and found. But I had to print out um, a, a version of it, and then I, I used an audiobook. So I'm... I have the text in front of me. I was worried I wouldn't have the text because that's not have to delay looking at the simulacrum. Anyways, the, the novel is 15 chapters and I'm going to read it three chapters an episode. So I'm going to do this over five episodes. So if you want to like shut this off and go read the first three chapters before coming back and listening to the rest, you can, you know, certainly do that. Um, but if you're going to read along with me, it's going to be three chapters every episode. And with that, I'm going to jump right into to chapter one of the simulacrum. There's a lot to talk about. Um, we're going to be introduced to a lot of characters here, and we're going to be introduced to a lot, uh, several settings, and you know, kind of get a lay of our land. And this is something Dick always does early in his novels: is kind of lay out the rules of the world he where where exists going to be existing in. Okay, so with that, let's start with chapter one. Okay, so most of these chapters have multiple scenes. Uh, th I think usually three. Uh, a few have two. A few have four. Chapter one has two two separate scenes and that, that I think that helps give this novel this feeling of being a bit disparate because he'll he'll give you a couple three scenes all dealing with different characters in a chapter and it's not sure why they're a chapter right uh, the novel certainly could have been reconstructed in a lot of different ways so we're always bouncing around um, actually if you were to film this you could almost just make your cuts right where he does because it's you know he doesn't spend too long in any one scene Anyways, uh, we, we open with our with one of our main characters, and there's so many here, but uh, we got to keep track of these. Uh, Nat Flieger. Now, Nat Flieger works for a company called Electronic Musical Enterprise, EME. Obviously, that's, a, that's just a pun on EMA, one of the major classical music recording companies out there. I think it's uh, Electronic Music Alliance, maybe. I don't know what... Um, Sorry, not EM, uh, EMI, right? EMI. They, they, they produce a lot of the operas I listen to. So anyways, uh, it's just he just changes the one, one letter, essentially. But it's a recording company. Um, and he's got a, basically a mission to record the music of this guy, uh, Kingrosian. Richard Kingrosian is his name. And he's us like a, from the Soviet bloc. So the world is, it's still bipolar, the world. The, the kind of the Western bloc has come to include much of, of Europe 
and that's actually kind of the political center and you see the kind of the heavy influence of German and and political talk of the time like the president is the Der Alta um, and there's other ways I will see as we go on of how German is, is used as kind of the ruling language almost and then you got in kind of the Soviet sphere as well and Congrosian was a defector from the Soviet sphere and he's He's special because he's a telekinetic. So he plays piano without using his fingers, right? So he just, you know, can interpret the music with his mind. I don't know if that makes him a better piano player or not, but you can imagine how maybe the interpretations might be a little bit different if you're playing as a teak. And he's very famous. He's played for the president many times, and that's a, not an insignificant thing. Um, now, he's got this creature called the Ampec FA2. And that is actually a Ganymedian life form, which is a recording device. So instead of electronic recording device, we have a kind of biotech that is recording device. And it's just a life form from Ganymede that, that records music. We're going to see other life forms from other planets play a role in the story, although whether they're simulacrums or real is, is something that's, that's not entirely clear for some of these other creatures. But uh, this, is, this seems to be a real-life alien that's one function is to record music better I guess it can do it better than any electronic device even though this Ampec FA2 is a little bit outdated it it's still what Nat Flieger uses to do the recording he has a lot of anxiety over meeting Congrosian though because he knows Congrosian is very much an isolated figure he doesn't really have any friends he kind of hides out in in the woods essentially and to record him you have to go to his house and going to his house is like a big trek so he's a bit anxious about doing that, and he knows they're going to have to force him to record that. There's a contract with EME that Congrosion hasn't completed, and so Nat is basically going to be a bit forceful in, in getting this contract done. He's concerned that Congrosion is also declining because of rumors that he's becoming increasingly mentally ill. So he thinks this may be the last chance to record Congrosion, so he needs to take advantage of it. Um, we also learn that the government is... Is, is, is sent in war. It, there's a government in Warsaw, which is the communist government, and then you have, that's kind of the Soviet bloc, and then you have the USEA, the United States of Europe and America. And that sounds familiar, so I think Dick did this in other works, or the same kind of idea. Of course, it's, I guess, well, Oceania and Brave New World is North America and England, right? And then the communists take over all of Europe. Um, here you got, I guess, basically the NATO countries are, are one single government now. And I think they may be housed in, in Europe, too. But then the, the Soviet government is in Warsaw. Kongrosian is very much individualist, and that's why he left um, to, to come to, to the West. So that's our, our first setup here, our first scene. It's just about Nat Flieger kind of being very anxious and bothered about this quest he has to go on to, to see, to see Kongrosian. So then we, we move to another scene and we meet a man named Ed, uh, Edgar Suburb. And Edgar Suburb is, is a, you know, he's kind of talked about as the last psychotherapist, but uh, he's not technically the last psychotherapist. Um, but there's other people in his organization that are also active this day. What's happened? Why, but it seems that the profession of psych, psychotherapy is coming to an end. And the reason why is because of a new law called the McPherson Act, which has been passed in the USEA. And the main backer of the McPherson Act is a company called AG Chemi. And AG Chemi is just a pharmaceutical conglomerate, a pharmaceutical verk or cartel. And they push this law through that basically bans psychotherapy 
because the belief was that psychotherapy doesn't work, but chemical treatment does work. And therefore, we should basically outlaw the quacks. And so the psychotherapist goes the way of the witch doctor or the way of like the snake oil salesman, you know, or of Chinese medicine or whatever that kind of old quacky, ridiculous medicine uh, had been embraced in the past. However, on this day, there are still 10,000 psychotherapists who plan to come to work because they are organized. There's kind of like a union. 10,000 will come to protest the law and Edgar's superb is one of them, and they'll all be arrested. It's, it's, so it's a form of civil disobedience. He's a bit, he doesn't really understand why Nicole and the Deralta signed this law. And so this gets us a, a way to be introduced to this relationship. And it's, it's unveiled a little bit over the next few chapters exactly what's going on here. But um, I mean, I guess I'll leave the spoiler to when it comes up in the novel, even though this is an old novel. And you can look it up on Wikipedia and find out what it is. But essentially, the Deralta is the elected representative of, of the people. He's the one you vote for every four years or whatever. And so he's like the president, right? Now, Nicole is the real leader in the political system. Now, there's also like a council, a committee behind Nicole, but Nicole is the public face of, of the nation. And she marries the Deralta. So whoever is elected then marries Nicole. And Nicole is a beautiful. In fact, she's attractive to essentially everyone, particularly to all the men. We, we don't meet enough women characters and the women characters we have don't really talk about Nicole. So it's the men who obsess about Nicole. But, but depending on who you talk to, she's either like, a sex object so she's this beautiful woman that that a man wants to have sex with or she's like a mother and you know the same character can have both feelings about nicole in fact but basically she kind of fills in those, those two psychological needs of 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 people um to have a mother and a lover or like a nurturer and a, and and kind of the aesthetic beauty Yet she has all the actual political power. And so he, he doesn't understand why Daryl designed this law. And, and then we get a little bit about the, this relationship. So it's kind of an interesting um, setting. This has been the, the case for a long time because we're, we're well into the 21st century in this novel. Uh, but so for about 70, 80 years, the system has worked. And the question of why is it that Nicole is still young is it's, it's a question um, because she's been the same person for, for many presidents. Many Deraltas, I should say. Now, why does she stay young? Well, that's not, you know, there's different ways Dick can deal with this, right? Uh, if you've read Dick, you, you can guess what they are. One, of course, we can think of is life extending technology, a certain something we've seen before in, in these stories. But basically, we learn that the reason Nicole and the Deralta agreed to this law is because of the lobby of the pharmaceutical companies. And we have an image that maybe we, in fact, do have kind of essentially a corporate rule over the government. Here's what's said. It's the great ethical pharmaceutical house, the cartel AG Chemie in Berlin. Everyone knows that. It's hardly news. The powerful German cartel sold the world the notion of drug therapy for mental illness. There was a fortune to be made there. And by corollary, psychoanalysis were quacks on par with the Oregon box and health food healers. It was not like the old days, the previous century, when psychoanalysts had their stature. So what it gets replaced with is essentially medi like medical, medicalization of, of or I guess, chemical solutions to, to mental problems. 
we get a little bit about the media here, and this will be important later on, is that media is distributed by automation, by machines, and actually news is taken in by recording devices. So it's it's not quite clear if there's actually journalists behind the scenes, but like advertisements come to people through like little flying bugs and things, and people try to kill them if they're too annoying, but they keep coming at you. And it seems that like here, a, a robot actually, or like some kind of machine actually comes up to superb egon superb did i say edgar before it's egon egon superb and and ask some questions right and then it'll become news later on down the cycle and at the end of the novel the importance of of these machines and distributed news is quite clear so although it is a dictatorship essentially we do have a fairly vibrant news vibrant news media but how much of it is done by actual journalists and how much is just automated is, is not entirely clear it seems to be mostly automated to be honest um, before going to his office, though, he decides to, to essentially dial a prayer, which is an interesting thing. Um, it's going to come up again, I think, in Galactic Pot Healer. We're going to get a closer look at the dial of the prayer, where someone can actually dial different religious traditions uh, for, for uh, succor and comfort. So he goes and he chit-chats with the secretary, and the secretary, of course, is very worried about losing her job, and she defends the the, the art of psychotherapy in suburb is a little bit more fatalistic about it. But eventually he's arrested um, by, well, he sees his first patient, a guy named Mr. Rogg, and it's a pretty mundane case. And after that, he's arrested by a guy named Pembroke. Um, and Pembroke takes him into his, his office. And he's actually let go. He's not arrested and thrown in jail like it seems many of his colleagues, these 10,000 other psychotherapists who come into work that day, it seems they're going to be all arrested. But Edgar Egon, sorry, Egon Superb is not arrested. Instead, Pembroke sits him down and tells him that you're going to continue to practice and you're going to continue to take patience. And I can't tell you more, but you have to accept whatever patience you, you get. And we're going to let you work. We're not going to arrest you. And the reason it seems is Pembroke believes with the writers of this McPherson Act that psychotherapy is quack. And the reason... Pembroke wants Suburb to continue to see this patient. He doesn't want him to get better. He doesn't want him to get well. So the psychotherapist is kept on the job in order to keep someone sick. And who this person is, it's, it's not clear yet. I think it's fairly clear by the end of the novel who Pembroke is trying to keep ill. Um, it actually seems to backfire uh, for Pembroke. Um, but as we'll find out later on, Pembroke has access to time travel machines, something called the Von Lessing effect, which allows certain people with access to this technology to explore different timelines, to see different possible futures, to save their lives in, in different time timelines as they wish. So he seems to have that. He knows something about this person. So he wants to keep this person mentally ill. And so that's the chapter. Um, basically, it's about Nat Flieger going in and setting up this quest to to record a patient and we have Egon Superb getting a quest to not heal a particular patient. The fact that they're after the same person is is not apparent now, but um, in hindsight, we know that that we're, they're talking about the same person, uh, Richard Congrosian. Okay, so that does it for chapter one. Okay, so chapter two. Chapter two also just has two scenes and they introduce us to, I guess, our, our more lowbrow characters in the novel. The the Strike Rocks, the Strike Rock family, and uh, Ian Duncan. Um, now, Vince Strike Rock and Ian Duncan, they have something in common in that they both live in, in a building called the Abraham Lincoln Apartment. And these are these massive 
apartment complexes that actually have their own governments. Dick has done this a lot in his previous works, um, even all the way back to the man who japed. He has this idea of people having these leases with these kind of collective apartment houses, and then they have kind of public meetings and moral oversight. And here there's not so much moral oversight of, of the people's lives. Instead, they do kind of do direct democracy kind of politics. Um, like I think the issue on the slate at this point is it's a question of whether they should close down the local public school and send or local school in the in the commune and send kids off to the public school and that there's a debate over that and there's some who want to see it undone or see the local school undone and some who want to see um, it you know the kids you know staying in, in the local commune this particular building is fairly old it was built back in 1992 but this is really key to the social order in fact uh, the way people fight to keep their leases here and if they they actually have to take tests periodically and if they fail the test they can be kicked out as being kind of you know a troublemaker or deviant or not keeping up with with the news and 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 the ideology of the day this is the main concern of the group of people that are called the bays the or the bees there's the bees and the gays uh, uh, ge's and bees i think it's bays and gays now, the gays are, are basically the higher upper class, but they're not always particularly rich. Uh, what they have is knowledge. They have knowledge about the way the system actually works. The bays don't, and the bays, they, they tend to be more enamored with Nicole. They tend to f care a lot about living, but they also seem to be, most of the bays we meet seem to be quite depressed uh, over the course of the novel. So if this is the social order we have, it's not the best. Uh, and we meet our character, Vince Strike Rock, who, who lives in these apartments, but he's also like the guard dog at one of these meetings. So he's, he's kind of a, got a bureaucratic function within the apartments himself, although his main job is to be, he works for a major cartel that makes androids, that makes gestalt humans. So we meet different people in the complex. Most of them aren't that important. Um, now, what happens at this public meeting that's taking place is basically two things. One is they got to discuss this school issue. And the guy who's overseeing it, the chairman, is, and he's a rotating chairman. His name is Donald Tishman. He doesn't like squabbles on the school issue, so he actually kind of boots it down the, down the road. Instead, he wants to focus on the talent show. So one of the big things this community does when they get together is they put on talent shows where people perform music, they sing or they do whatever they want. And the goal of all this is to someday get the attention of these traveling talent scouts who go around the country viewing the talent shows that, that take place every week at these different apartments. And then to find people who are good enough to perform before Nicole. So this is the great goal of most of the bays um, is just to someday perform before Nicole. Oh, wait, we actually have three scenes. Now, the three scenes in this, in this chapter all, all take place in the Abraham Lincoln apartments. The second scene, we meet uh, Edgar Stone. And Edgar Stone is, is at this point grading E.N. Duncan's test paper. And E.N. Duncan's another important character in the novel. Edgar Stone's not that important, but, but E.N. is. Um, and he has just failed his test. And this means that having failed his test, he's going to be kicked out of the Abraham Lincoln apartments and he'll his like original deposit will be returned to him and then he'll have really nowhere to go and what will become of Portia and Duncan is a major plot point in the in the novel 
Um, we see how important the media is, this, the, the importance of entertainment in the White House and the importance of, of people observing this entertainment and people trying to be part of that entertainment. And that, that's one of the major goals of, of people's existence. Um, but it's so hopeless, right? So Edgar Snow seems to realize how hopeless it is for anyone to be truly noticed by Nicole. And we get an important point here because Edgar Snow thinks about what would I do if I was in Ian Duncan's case and I had to, and I had to lose my lease. And here's what we get. Says, what would I do, he asked himself as he sat eyes closed, if I had my equity back right now in a lump sum? Perhaps he thought I'd emigrate. Buy one of those cheap illegal jalopies that they peddle in those lots with. Clapping hands roused him. The girls had finished and he too joined in the applause. On the platform, Tishman waved for silence. End quote. So he's actually at the, this performance. Um, but he's thinking about, he's spending the whole time thinking about Ian Duncan having to be kicked out. And so if you don't have this apartment, really the only hope for you is to maybe emigrate. So that is, is that is landed here. And we also learned about these jalopies and what the jalopies are. Basically there's these weird moving used car lots, essentially, um, that travel and they actually seem to be, they can target people who want to emigrate. And it's not clear how some kind of psychic a power, but it seems to be there when you need it. Um, it's not explained why, but it, see, it seems they come when you need it, and they actually advertise with psychic kind of manipulation where they say, oh, don't you want to emigrate? And they're basically one way, they're, they're ships that can get you to Mars, but they can't get you back, right? So they're a one-way ship, and they're cheap. They're not like the tickets. The tickets are more expensive if you want to get a ticket on a, ticket on a big freighter. So this is where people who are literally at the end of the rope will go to buy a jalopy and then flee to Mars. And Edgar Snow thinks, I would do that if I lost my, my lease. And that shows you how important these leases are to people's existence. So um, then we meet Ian Duncan. And Duncan is not at the meeting. He stayed home and he's essentially, um, I think he's watching TV, right? And uh, like he gets one of Nicole's speeches. And he listens to one of Nicole's speeches. So mostly Ian Duncan, we know he's just failed his exam and will likely be kicked out. He thinks that this is his fate. He doesn't, he's not that optimistic that he passed his test. And he thinks about the political situation. He, he thinks about when it was that a single party state emerged in the, in, in the West. He thinks about the different parties. He, I mean, he, this was history he had to study for for the test. So that's maybe one reason it's on his mind so much. He's thinking about it. Uh, he actually wonders why the first lady rose to be such a prominent figure in in earth politics and the rise of the first lady. He even says at one point, like, why is it that we've become a matriarchy? And his answer seems to be that it's because men have become so weak and men have, have become so feeble. And so this idea of emasculation kind of runs through the novel. We have a lot of characters who feel they really don't have a place in this world anymore. They've lost a wife or they lost their apartment or they're losing their job or, you know, they're just overall failures. And so the question of what to do about that and this, the, you can either emigrate, kind of embrace Nicole as the mother who will care for you and hope for the best, or you join the Sons of Job, like the Nazi movement. And and different characters will make different choices and actually think about different choices. I mean, many of our characters actually think about joining the Sons of Job. Many of them think about emigrating. Um, and many of them are enamored with Nicole. So they're all, they're all kind of true at once, but they're different solutions to maybe this problem of emasculation that men are, men are facing. Now, 
as he hears this speech by Nicole, Ian Duncan is just overwhelmed with this feeling of inadequacy about 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 Nicole and just how much of a failure he is, how he can't live up to her, and just the psychological power of this woman, who's essentially a media image of government power, is, is quite striking. Duncan Ian Duncan has all kinds of anxieties about his own intelligence as well, and this is what leads him to finally decide maybe he'll just go to Mars. But he decides at the end of the chapter that he has one last chance, one last hope, one last thing that can save him, and that is he can contact his friend Al Miller. Al Miller and Duncan, years back, used to have a two-man classical jug band. And he thinks, maybe I can revive that. Maybe I can. We, can. we can perform in front of the Abraham Lincoln apartments. We can get noticed by a talent scout. We can go to the White House. And then maybe, you know, I can make something out of my life. And it's at that moment when he's kind of on his last ropes that he actually gets notice from Edgar Stone that, that he passed the test. Now, why did he pass his test? Well, he passed the test because Edgar Snow passed him um, and basically let him pass. But that's how the chapter ends. So a little bit of good news at the end of the chapter, but we really do see Ian Duncan on his back at his last strings. The only thing he really can hold on to is this image of Nicole and maybe the hope that he can pique her interest in him by playing his classical jug music. Oh, by the way, I do, do think Ian Duncan at one point mentions the name of the Deralta, whose name is, is Klobfleech, um, and that's, that's that. Um, he's not that important for a character, as we'll see. Um, so in Chapter 3, we, we meet Vince uh, again, Vince Strike, Strike, Vince, sorry, his name keeps slipping my mind. It's a bit of a name, Vince Strike Rock, uh, who we met in the, at the meeting in the previous chapter. But now he's back essentially at his apartment in the Abraham Lincoln um, communal apartments. And he just doesn't like this current De Alta. And, and it's interesting, like, we have a total dictatorship here. All power is in the hands of a committee or in Nicole. Like, visibly, Nicole has all the power. But people vote for the De Alta, And so people can kind of project their anxiety. So it's very much this image of kind of a, of a, of a, of a state in which you have the facade of democracy, right? Where people vote every four years and they think they have a say in, in, in government, but actually they don't. And this is reinforced in that while they're, he's actually listening to a Deralta speech. And, you know, Ian was listening to a Nicole speech. Now Vince is looking, listening to a Deralta speech. I don't know if that's significant, but, you know, there's actually democracy in this world based on the media even. So that didn't seem that Ian Duncan could do this with Nicole. But Vince Streichrock can actually punch buttons on his TV, basically saying if he likes the speech or he doesn't. And if enough people say they don't like the speech, it'll actually shut off and the Deralta will stop speaking. I don't think they can do that with, with Nicole, though. So Vince Streichrock is doing that. And he's just kind of a grumpier person. He doesn't, he's got a lot going on in his life anyways. Uh, what's just happened to him is his wife, Julia, has just divorced him. And he's very frustrated over the liberal divorce laws of of the time and he actually goes on a bit of a rant about what marriage is and we can tell that this is philip k dick probably in another one of his um, puffed up moods about about marriage um, which he tends to get into from time to time and here's what we get from 
from Dick. Quote, what was marriage anyways? An arrangement of sharing things such as the right to be able to discuss the meaning of Deralta giving an 8 a.m. speech and getting someone else, his wife, to fix breakfast while he prepared to go to his job at Carp Unschkon and Wolverka's Detroit branch. Yes, it meant an arrangement in which one could get another person to do certain things one didn't like to do, such as cooking meals. He hated having to eat food which was prepared himself. Single, he'd have to eat at the building cafeteria. He foresaw that based on his past experience. Gene, Mary, Jean, Laura, and now Julie, four marriages, and the last had been as short as. He was going downhill. God, maybe, God forbid, he was a latent queer. And then he goes back to the speech. Um, so a lot of resentment over, over his failed, failed marriages. Four marriages, isn't that how many Dick had? I got no Dick had five marriages. But by this point, I don't think he had five yet. He was on his fourth, maybe. No, this would have been his, I have to look it up. But third or fourth by this point in his life. Um, now he also thinks through different options for himself. He, he thinks about the history of the war. He thinks about the days of barbarism, they're called, which is actually the 20th century is the days of barbarism, and particularly the middle of the 20th century with, in World War II. He thinks about joining the Sons of Job and their paramilitary, paramilitary, group, paramilitary group. And these are the things that are being talked about by the Deralta and being condemned. Vince himself, though, decides maybe he should emigrate too so he's the second or third in a way the third character in the third chapter who's considered leaving earth altogether going to mars um, I, i've talked so much about the frontier in this series and i did it a lot in martian time slip and I, I made the case in martian time slip that dick's views of the frontier are changing in, in many ways the, the frontier here is still very much an optimistic place but it's a place for people who've really reached their last leg the hopeless so it's not really as an optimistic of a frontier as we might imagine, because it is a place where hopeless people go. And we don't ever get an image of what this frontier is like. It's just out there. It's like, you know, once the characters leave to the frontier, they're, they're off screen. And I think only one person, two, maybe two people eventually go that way. But anyways, he's, he's essentially just watching TV, thinking about emigrating. He misses Julia. He sees news on the McPherson Act. Um, um, but anyways, he's, he's just at a low point and, and he goes to see Chick, his brother. Now Chick also lives in these apartments. So he goes, walks over to, to Chick's apartment. Um, and, and we're introduced to Chick Strike Rock, who's also kind of a depressed character who's kind of at the end of his rope. The company he works for, he, like his brother, he works for a Gestalt human company but he works for a much smaller firm and a firm that's failing um, and but he he did manage to pick up Julia on, on the rebound from her from her marriage to her his brother so he's basically waking up in the morning with Julia and Julia complains of, of Vince and Julia complains about about chick having to go to work and I guess they just started shacking up in the previous night or pretty recently and already she's complaining about how he has to go to work every day she said do you really have to trot out to that little company to go to work she eyed him steadily and he saw for what perhaps for the first time in his life that she had love she had lovely natural color in her eyes a polished slab texture and a rock smoothness and brilliance that needed the natural daylight for it to be brought out she had too an odd square jaw with a slightly large mouth with the tendency to turn turn down tragedy mask like with her lips unnaturally red and lush, drawing attention away from her rather drabby colored hair. 
She had a nice figure, round, pleasant, and she dressed well. That is, she looked splendid in whatever she wore. Clothes seemed to fit her, even mass-produced cotton dresses that other women would have difficulty with. Now she stood wearing the same olive-colored dress with round, round black buttons, which she had worn the night before. A cheap dress, really, yet in it she looked elegant. There's no other word for it. She had an aristocratic carriage and a bone structure. It showed her jaw, her nose, her excellent teeth. She was not German, but she was Nordic, perhaps Swedish or Danish, she thought, as he glanced at her, and that looked just fine. So he's attracted to her, and he's got all these nice things to say about her, but she immediately goes back to complaining about how she's hungry, she needs him to make breakfast for him. So, you know, you get the sense that maybe Chick is already regretting um, uh, hooking up with, with Julie. Now, this is actually a relationship that, that seems to work out um, by the end of the novel, so that's a nice, nice thing. Um, and so, yeah, these are the first two scenes of the chapter. Um, yeah, Vince doesn't come to approach him yet. That's in a later chapter. But, but Vince will eventually approach Chick and, and confront him about stealing his ex-wife. And then we move to uh, kind of high politics just briefly at the end of chapter three for a couple pages. We meet a man named Garth McRae. And he's a, a high official in the government uh, with Nicole. And he's talking to... Um, Vince's company, this this CARP, and so CARP's big contract. And here we learn an important point. This is some. Of, this is a bit of the knowledge that that Gies know that Bays don't know. It's actually called Gaminus in the novel. The, the, it's like the knowledge, the, the the truth, the fact that that they know. And there's two of them, and we learn about one of them now, and that is that the Deralta is just a robot. It's just an android, a, a Gestalt human. Sorry, I'm so embarrassed. I've been saying Gestalt, have I? Erzak. Erzad is the term. Erzad human. Um, it's a different science fiction novel with the with Gestalt people. Uh, sorry, 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 sorry. That's very embarrassing. I'm gonna go back and, and fix it. Um, but and you you know Erzad. I'll just say Android for now on, so I don't make that mistake. So he's talking to this Carp representative. Maybe I think he's talking to Carp directly, actually. And he says, you know. I'm we're we're removing your contract. Uh, Nicole doesn't like the Deralta, so we're going to kill him. We're going to find some way for him to die. Like we'll give him a heart attack or something. And and you, you know, basically, Nicole didn't like the specifications that you produced, and she's bored of him. She wants someone a little bit younger. And and that's it. So he's going to find so this Mc, Garth McRae is going to find a new company to produce the simulacrum of the Deralta. And he decides to go to Frau Zimmer Associates. Frau Zimmer Associates is the smaller firm, and it's not. I think McGarth McRae likes the idea of going to a, a smaller company for this. And, but this is the company that Chick works for. Remember, Vince works for the big uh, cartel. Uh, Frau Zimmer, you know, hires hires Chick, and I think that's just like two people work there. It's like a guy and Chick who's the sales representative work in this company. So it's much more of an artisanal boutique kind of uh, supplier of, of robots. I think mostly what they make are robots for to be your neighbors when you go to Mars. So you go to Mars, it's lonely, you're, you have no one nearby, so you get robot neighbors that you can talk to and, and have nearby. And I, which I think is a really hilarious idea, actually, because, you know, how often do you talk to your neighbors, right? Do you, how, much, how often do you really care that they're real people? You could make do with robot neighbors who you might chit-chat with for have a beer with and then go, you go back to your life. Um, but anyways, now, but we got some connections here and he actually thinks about uh, the sons of Job at one point in this chapter too. So we got this association of like 
the youth. Oh, sorry, this is me thinking about this. Uh, it's not necessarily directly stated in this chapter, but the association of the sons of Job with youth, the association of Nicole as youthful, and the desire of Nicole stated here to have a youthful Der Alta. And then the, the kind of the fascination of fascist movements for, for, for youthfulness and kind of youth culture. And if you see an Olympia uh, or Triumph of the Will, you, you get this kind of glorification of, of, of youth. So anyways, that, that's the end of chapter three. Um, so we, we, we learned something important about this political world system we have here, and that is that Deralta is a, a robot, an android. Um, but we are introduced to most of our main characters. The only one we haven't really met directly, I guess, is Nicole. Um, some of Ned Flieger's companions. And I guess uh, King Grosjean himself. We haven't met him yet, but we will in future chapters. So sorry about screwing up Gestalt and Erzak. I don't even know why I confuse those two. I guess two foreign words that that Dick uses in his, his fiction from time to time. Um, but so sorry about that. Um, I'll try not to make those mistakes in the future. Um, but that does it. That does it for my first uh, look at the simulacrum. So if you're reading along, uh, go ahead and read chapters four, five, six, and I'll give you my thoughts on it in the upcoming episode. So as always, thank you so much for listening and sharing this journey through the works of Philip K. Dick with me. Um, if you enjoy this, please, uh, if you're just joining us, please subscribe to this podcast and check out my other uh, recordings. I got a bunch of other stuff on American Writers, too, if you're interested in, in that. So... Um, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at, at gmail.com. And I will see you next time uh, where I'll look at part two of the Simulacrum, chapters four, five, and six. Thanks for listening. And contentment forever If you